Welcome to Growth Chat, a podcast series where we interview economists and social scientists asking about their most recent research papers and publications. The aim of this podcast is to share the invaluable work that economists, sociologists, anthropologists and historians do, making accessible to the general public and students, independently from their background and preparation. I'm your host, Marco Lecci, PhD student in Economic at Monash University, and with me, directing the interview, is Sasha Baker, Professor in Economics at Monash and Warwick University. Enjoy the interview. We are very happy today to welcome Luigi Pascali from uh, UPF in Barcelona. He got his PhD at Boston College some years ago, and before he was at Bocconi University in Italy. He is actually Italian, from the south of Italy. And today we will be talking about his paper that came out in the American Economic Review in 2017 called The Wind of Change, Maritime Technology, Trade and Economic Development. And we are very happy to have you. Welcome, Luigi. Thank and, you. Thank uh, you for having me here. You could start by giving us a short summary of what your work is about. So this paper looks at the second half of the 19th century. This is an extremely interesting period for economists that are interested in international trade because it corresponds to the first wave of trade globalization. So the world experienced a gigantic increase in international trade. Just to give you an idea, export to GDP uh, more than doubled between 1870 and 1913, and export per capita tripled in this period. So now the big questions that this paper tried to address is, what explain this increase in trade and how the first wave of trade globalization affected economic uh, development and in general the standard of living across different regions of the world. Um, you mentioned, um, so I read your paper and you mentioned all the difference between sailing vessels and steamboat. What was the difference between the two and why you focus on that part? So uh, what is interesting is that exactly when we see this explosion of international trade in the second half of the 19th century, that's when we see probably the most relevant innovation in uh, maritime transportation in history, the invention of the steamship. So the invention of the steamship produced two different types of effects. First of all, as you can imagine, it shrinks the world. It's faster, okay? So on average, it takes half of the time to go from country A to country B. But also it produces a second very interesting effect. That is, it shrinks the world, but it does it in an asymmetric way. So there are trade routes where practically this innovation does not change shipping times, and there are trade routes where these shipping times are reduced by more than 10 times. So uh, also you have some countries, you know, practically every country now get closer to the other countries in terms of trade, but this change is asymmetric across different countries. And let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, in terms of trade routes, uh, let's imagine uh, let's consider trade between Portugal and Cape Verde. Okay? When we think about the uh, Northern Atlantic, we need to think that wind tend to go in a clockwise uh, pattern. So going by sailing ship 
from Portugal to Cape Verde, it was very easy. It was very fast. But coming back was a complete mess. So de facto, before this innovation, trade patterns are constrained by wind patterns. So winds tend to go clockwise on the Northern Atlantic. So this implies that Europe will export to Africa. Africa will export to the Caribbean and to, um, and to North America. And North America will export back to Europe. Then the steamship arrives. And you see these wind patterns becomes absolutely irrelevant. Now it takes the same time to go from Portugal to Cape Verde as to go from Cape Verde to Portugal. So we have a gigantic change in, in trade patterns across all the world. Second, we have changes in the relative isolation of countries. So before the invasion of the steamship, you had countries that were very far from all the main trade centers of the world, but were still at the center of the trade network. And this because of, the, um, of wind patterns. So for instance, if you think about Brazil, Brazil was far from the US, was far from Europe, was far from China, and was far from India. But it was at the center of the world trade network because whenever from Europe you wanted to go either to East Africa or to Asia or to Australia, you were constrained by winds to pass in front of Brazil. Then the steamship arrived and now the only thing that counts is geographical distance. So Brazil, that used to be at the center of the trade network, now is suddenly at the periphery of the trade network. So uh, these sort of generate a natural experiment. You know, some countries had, you know, suddenly more trade, you can say sent by God, while some others do not. And then we can understand what happens to the countries that are exposed more to trade compared to those countries that instead they lose some trade. So does your research uh, quantify how much trade goes up overall because of um, the steamship? And then can you say which were the biggest winners and which were the biggest losers or maybe one example for each? Yes. So practically uh, in the paper, I argue that the reduction in shipping times, which is induced by this steam engine, might be responsible for approximately half of the increase in trade that we observed during the first wave of trade globalization. Now, this is an extremely large number, but let me very, be very clear here is that this is a very crude estimate. It should be taken with a grain of salt. It is based on the assumption that the, the rollout of the steam was uniform across different countries and different products and that it was completely concluded by the end of the period of the analysis. But if we take um, this assumption, then practically we can say that the number one reason behind the first wave of trade globalization is the introduction of the steamship. And then the question is, again, what are the effects on standard of livings that come from this, uh, from this first wave of trade globalization? Now, what I find here is uh, yeah, these results, they, they are somehow surprising uh, for economists. Uh, on average, we do not find that countries that are exposed more for trade, to trade, they ended up 
uh, more urbanized or with higher level of per capita GDP or with higher level of population density. In fact, actually I find quite the opposite. So there seem to be two sets of countries here. There seem to be winners and losers from globalization. Uh, the winners are those countries that were already rich to start with, mainly Europe and neo-Europe's, and that had good institutions, in the sense of institutions that were protecting property rights and that um, were, were constraining the executive power. So these countries, when the world globalized, they ended up specializing in manufacturing. And I find in the data, they, they do benefit from globalization and they do benefit a lot. The majority of the world in this period, however, ended up specializing in agriculture. And in a sense, at least in the short run, uh, this does not produce any positive effect on average, on standard of living as proxied by per capita GDP, or does not produce any positive effect on other measure of economic development, um, like uh, population density or urbanization rates. Uh, now, a question, um, what sort of data? So there's like a lot of things here, uh, very interesting, but we're talking about wind, we're talking about steamboats, we're talking about different routes, and we're talking about development. What sort of data did you collect and how did you collect it? Yeah, so I think at the heart of this project is you know, a gigantic data collection. Um, and in particular, so there are three novel data sets uh, that you can find in this paper. The first data set is a data set about uh, shipping times across uh, different countries of the world, across different ports. So these shipping times are practically constructed uh, using least cost algorithms that take into account the relevant sailing technology and the pattern of winds across, uh, across the oceans and the pattern of um, currents. So you need to think that practically uh, it was a very simple uh, computer program that was computing you know, the best way of going from A to B given the relevant sailing technology. Now, then we, we sort of validate these optimized trade routes by looking at actual trade routes. So we collect the data on uh, the logbooks of sailing voyages, and we practically show in the paper that the optimized routes, they tend to correspond actually to the actual routes uh, for the very few pairs of ports or countries for which uh, these data were available. The second large data set here is a trade data set. So in particular, we have collected data on uh, bilateral trade patterns. So we have uh, data for almost a thousand of uh, country pairs. Also, we have collected data on uh, trade at the sectoral level. So I know how much coal uh, was, for instance, Britain exporting. And finally, we have collected data on total trade. Okay, so this is, I think, where the majority of time and resources in this project went. How long did it take you? <laughs> so this was, uh, this, it took a long time. Uh, it took a couple of years. And uh, I had 
a lot of persons that have been working with me on this. So practically, uh, uh, I was teaching uh, comparative development here at UPF, both at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level. And I asked practically to, to the students if they wanted to continue to work with me during the summer. So practically, I had a class at the end of 30, 40 students um, that uh, was collecting this data. Um, so we would have meetings every morning and it was literally a class. Uh, so some people were traveling uh, to go to some archives and some libraries to find this data. And uh, uh, you know, at the end, yeah, it took some time. Um, also like uh, it took some uh, uh, computing resources. So for instance, it was uh, summer here. So I could use probably all the labs of Pompeo Fabra. I had three labs with several hundreds of computers that were working all at the same time for me. That's impressive. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting, uh, this part of the project. That's to say research is not. <laughs> yeah, I remember you, you worked some years at, at Warwick, where I also um, was at the same time, and how you had all these cards with books uh, standing in the office uh, as yes. you were working the revision, I think. So that uh, just the sheer volume of books seemed impressive at the time. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, uh, there, were, there were a lot of data. <laughs> there was a lot of work of data collection here. Um, but it was fun. It was very fun. Would you say there were results um, that surprised you? Or did you have very clearly in mind before the data spoke what should come out and the results were more or less in line with your expectations or were there also some surprises? Well, so let's put it like this. The first time I run the regression and this is, you know, what you will find probably in table one in the paper, you know, the regression was telling me that uh, an exogenous increase in trade is bad for economic development. Now, the first time that I saw this result, I just wanted to kill myself because as you can imagine, uh, you know, trade economists uh, are not going to react uh, easily to, to, to such a result. But then I went a little bit deeper in the literature and, you know, this, I, I, you know, once you start stud studying this period, uh, you realize that actually uh, you had several economic historians that had already made this point uh, that globalization, the first wave of trade globalization was not that good. Uh, so for instance, you have this very famous book, Trade and Poverty by Williamson, that then inspired my, you know, the, the, the rest of, of the analysis. But at the beginning, yes, results were, were quite surprising. Um, so as readers, how can we interpret today those results? Just like a few words here. It's like, what, can, what is the takeaway from that? Yeah, so it's, um, uh, you know, of course, the world today is very different with respect to how it was in the 19th century. But still, what this is telling you is that there was at least one moment in history at which globalization did not necessarily produce good results on average. You needed to have a certain institutional structure in order to benefit from, from globalization. And I think this message uh, is still valid today. Um, it's, 
it's not clear 100% to me that uh, you know, by simply opening up to trade, um, you know, everybody's gonna end up benefiting, benefiting from it. Um, so this is, you know, this is just, I, I think you have a gigantic literature in trade that will tell you, look, trade is good whenever you open up to trade, uh, standard of living on average are gonna improve. And here, this is just a small result that tell you, look, there was at least one historical episode, but a very relevant historical episode in which these did not seem to happen. So the fastest, like being fast, wasn't synonymous of like being better at the time. Like having the faster boat, we can say it wasn't like necessary. Just exactly. But, 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 but let me be very clear, you know, it's also we need to take this with a grain of salt uh, when, we, when we think about the world today. You know, if you think about, for instance, uh, India. Now suddenly it's easier to go to India. Well, in this period, this really means that, uh, you know, it's easy uh, for, uh, uh, for the British to get to India, uh, you know, destroy the local manufacturing, imposing tariffs on imports and on exports, decide what to import and what to export, uh, messing up with uh, the local kingdoms. Um, so you need to understand that, you know, this is a very special period. So there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, it's just like, um, a result showing that in this particular setting, um, not always uh, trade was beneficial. Thank you. Yeah, let's also talk a bit about uh, where you are coming from in terms of career. So uh, did you always see yourself as an economic historian from the very beginning or did that happen accidentally, say? So I think I was trained as a, as a macroeconomist, uh, but then, uh, uh, well, but then I, I sort of fell in love with, with economic history and in particular with this um, comparative development literature. Um, I just, yeah, you know, I just find it extremely interesting. And I, I think what is very, very exciting about this is that here we can really steal from a lot of different social sciences. We can steal from anthropology, from political science, uh, from history. And you know, in these sciences, they have developed very interesting theories and hypotheses. And as economists, we have the tools to test them. We have the resources to collect data and today's easier and easier to collect this data. And also we have the econometric tools to, to test these theories. And this is what I, what I find exciting. The fact that we can still deal with extremely big questions because you know, it's a relatively new field. And so like there is a lot unexplored there. We have a very clear theoretical background that has been put together in other social sciences, and, and we can steal from that, uh, these, these, these theories and, 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 and try to test them with the data. I find these extremely interesting and exciting. Um, so I'm very curious now, is there 
any other project you're working on, something similar. We know that uh, economic history sits a little bit between sociology, anthropology. Uh, so you are right at the edge, right? So you're working, you're getting a little bit from different uh, social sciences. Uh, is there any other project you're working on similar to this one? Yes. Uh, so there is a very exciting project I'm working on and actually is co-authors with uh, uh, Sasha here and uh, uh, two former students of ours, Andreas Ferrara and uh, Eric Melander. Now it's Peaceburg and Namur. Um, so one of the, probably the, the main question in comparative development is, why is it that some countries are richer than others? And the usual answer to which the, probably the majority of economists would agree is, well, this depends on the, on the type of institutions that they had. Um, and, you know, going back in time, the idea is that, well, Europeans, they, um, uh, they sort of brought extractive institutions in some countries, inclusive institutions in some other countries. And well, those countries that uh, ended up, uh, you know, more developed were those countries that got the good institutions. But now, you know, if we go back one step, there is the questions on why is it that Europeans ended up dominating the rest of the world um, and uh, not the other way around? And one of the, one of the answers here is related with, with the superiority of uh, European institutions and in particular with the superiority of Western liberal democracies. And now, why is it that Europe ended up developing liberal democracies and uh, not uh, uh, other contemporaneous civilization? Why we do not find them in China or in India? So there is a prominent theory in political science according to which to find the origins of Western liberal democracies, we need to go back in time to towns and cities in late medieval period. Uh, in Europe. So it is starting from the 12th century that our continent experienced the development of local centers of powers, towns and cities that were characterized by um, uh, representative uh, institutions and the rule of law. And why is it that this happened in Europe and not in other contemporaneous civilization? Well, the theory, the main theory that you see there in political science is that this is related with the fact that Europe was constituted by, you know, a large numbers of powers that were constantly at war with each other. And uh, practically this constant state of war uh, ended up, uh, you know, le led to the development of uh, representative institutions. Probably the main idea is that these rulers, they needed money to fight these wars. And in order to raise this money, you needed representative institutions and, and rule of law. And in this particular paper, what we do is we try to test exactly this theory and see whether it is true when you look at Central Europe that um, uh, you know, exogenous external threat actually lead to more democratic uh, local institutions.
Okay, so we're probably going to interview. When is the paper uh, coming out? Do you have a rough idea? Because we're going to lock you in for the next interview. That sounds super. Uh, on this, uh, Sasha, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> we have both others here, so we can, I, can have, I can run the interview and interview both of you. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Okay. Uh, well, let us know, and we are more than happy to have you uh, back if you want to uh, talk um, about any other project you have, any other research paper uh, you're passionate about. Uh, we would like to thank you uh, for agreeing to the interview. Uh, thanks, Sasha, for helping me uh, run the interview, and we hope to see you soon at the next one. Thank, thank you, Luigi. You. Thank you, Sasha, and, uh, and thank you, Mark. It was fantastic to meet you. Thank <laughs> you.